Hello everyone and welcome to Energy Explored. This podcast covers the challenges of achieving a carbon neutral global economy, cutting emissions of gases and pollutants and setting up new energy systems. Join Reed Smith lawyers and guest speakers as they shed light on the most important trends in emissions control and new fuels. Tune in as we follow the ever-evolving journey through the transition of energy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Energy Explored. This is Chris Edwards, a senior associate in Reed Smith's ENR Group in Dubai. We have with us here today my colleague, Alison Eslick. Alison specializes in construction and commercial disputes with a focus on complex cross-border international arbitration. Alison is an Australian qualified lawyer and has practiced in the Middle East for 14 years. We also have two external guests joining us today. Alex Haynes is the head of business development for Petrofax New Energy Services Group. Alex began his career as a British Army officer in the Royal Logistic Corps and joined Petrofax in 2019. We also have Jonathan Carpenter, Jonathan joined Petrofax strategy team in 2011, became group head of strategy in 2017, and as part of that role, developed Petrofax energy transition strategy. Today, as vice president of new energy services, Jonathan helps lead Petrofax offering to the renewables and low carbon sectors. We're here today to talk about some of the challenges faced in achieving climate goals, the evolving energy transition, the key players, and how this is impacting the legal landscape. John, Alex, welcome to the Energy Explored podcast. The new energy services group sounds like an exciting initiative. Perhaps you could start by giving us an overview of what the new energy services group does. Thanks, Chris. I'll start briefly and hand over to John. So thank you for allowing us on this podcast. It's a fascinating medium, and I think one that speaks very well towards sort of the new energy and the new markets that we're looking at. People are consuming media and consuming content in a different way. And, and we see people consuming energy in a different way. And Petrofac has been successful for the last 41 years in delivering energy, mainly in hydrocarbons, to our end customers. So we, we design and build and operate energy assets, mainly hydrocarbons, but we see a real opportunity in, in energy transition. So, so the skills that we bring in terms of designing and then constructing, safely commissioning and then operating and effectively in an economic manner is equally applicable in hydrogen or carbon capture or, or wind as it is in, in fossil fuel based uh, based areas. And so when John and I looked at the, the opportunity about two and a half, three years ago, we got our heads together and, and looked at sort of five areas where we think that Petrofac can, can add real value to, to this market and this sector growing forward. And I'll let John explain the, the five areas. So we, we kind of started with, you know, what, what, did we under, what did we understand? Where did we have kind of capability and experience that we thought was applicable? So we've been doing offshore wind actually for, for well over a decade now. And a bit of the offshore wind farm that we do is the transmission platforms. It looks like a kind of standard offshore oil and gas jacket and top sides, except it's got transformers on top instead of oil and gas processing kit. So that, that was a pretty kind of small step out for us. And in fact, you know, we've been playing with CO2 molecules as part of upstream gas separation, again, for, for decades, particularly in the Middle East. So thinking about, you know, taking that skill set and experience and some of the technologies there and looking at, you know, how can we make more of that in the carbon capture space, again, was a, a pretty small step out. And Petrofax has actually been looking at that space for, again, well over a decade, particularly in the UK, where there's been you know, a couple of government-led competitions as to how to get that industry going. So again, that made that made a lot of sense to us to, to step into that in a much bigger way. 
And then hydrogen. So we, we've been playing with hydrogen molecules as part of the refinery work we've been doing, again, for well over a decade. So we understood the gray hydrogen side. And obviously, if you combine that with, with carbon capture, then you've got blue hydrogen. So that, that was a pretty obvious thing to step into. Um, and then the combination of that hydrogen molecule understanding with actually our understanding of the electrons and the transmission systems from the offshore wind side. Um, and we started looking at green hydrogen pretty early, yeah, three years ago now. And that's something where we've seen a huge appetite and interest in growing enormously, particularly in, in the Middle East over the last kind of 12 months or so as well. And so that's that's become a very big area of focus, not just the hydrogen production, but then also the conversion of that hydrogen into things like ammonia and methanol. So we can move that energy around as a molecule a little bit more easily. And then, you know, building on some of that refining and petrochemical skill set, you know, we're used to taking crude oil and converting it into fuels. There was a big push around the kind of circular economy and where you could find more renewable feedstocks, particularly waste streams. So anything from tires, use cooking oil, animal tallows, all the way through to things like sewage sludge and do some clever kind of process engineering and chemistry to convert those into fuels, whether that's biofuels for, for kind of trucks and, and road vehicles or sustainable aviation fuels to decarbonize aviation. Again, it, it's a huge sector, a really big, hard to abate sector as well. And one where we saw our, our kind of skill set and capabilities would be really well suited to delivering that type of kind of complex kind of conversion project. And then finally, we looked at emissions reduction. So this is really helping our traditional oil and gas clients reduce their emissions footprint, whether that's through reducing their flaring, which is obviously a big problem for the oil and gas industry, or looking at things like electrifying their assets, so adding solar panels in the Middle East or connecting up to offshore wind turbines if you're in the North Sea or somewhere offshore, but then also just good operational practices around the assets to try and improve operational efficiency and performance and reduce the emissions footprint that way. So there, yeah, those are our, our five areas of focus where we think we can we can really add value. We've been going at it a couple of years now, Alex, and yeah, the market's really starting to, to move and get really exciting. Just one thing to add there, Chris, is it's a different client base and often different geographies. So this journey has taken us into a lot more uh, European, Scandinavian regions than, than we've traditionally played in. We secured our first job in Sweden uh, last year on a CCS project. And we've won a, a project in Chile as well, in, down in Chile del Fuego. So interesting diversification for Petrofac. And from a, a legal point of view, actually taking us into, into different geographies is quite, is quite interesting. We do see on the back of COP27 and the forthcoming COP28, quite a lot of growth in this area, in these sectors in, in the Middle East and the GCC region as well. So we're back in our heartlands, as it were. But it's been, a, yeah. it's been an interesting uh, set of business trips that, that, we, that we've been on, as opposed to typically going back to Saudi and Iraq and, and the UAE all the time. That sounds like you're going to get a few more stamps on your passport then. That sounds great. It sounds like a significant commitment is being made across the energy sector to this transition to alternative energy sources. And I know, John, you mentioned several of them just now. What, what do you think is driving this change? And is, is it government? Is it regulations and law? Is it clients? Is it public perception? Do you have any insights into that? Yeah, I'll start and Alex can, can chip in. I think it's a, it's a bit of a combination of things. So you've got at one level... You know, the world in general has woken up to the fact that climate change is real. It's been anthropogenically caused. And so we need to do something about it pretty quickly. And you're starting to see governments putting into law net zero commitments. So the UK was one of the first that did that. So that's requiring the UK government to put together a, a program, a set of policies, initiatives that will ultimately drive that uh, reduction in our, our emissions. Uh, and then you're starting to see through COP26, COP27, 
hopefully coming up COP28 in the UAE as well. Other governments around the world say, you know, UK, Europe, you know, we're very much at the front of this, but we're starting to see UAE, Oman, Saudi, all really starting to accelerate into this space with that kind of government-led push. But then on, on the other side, you've also got a, a kind of corporate drive to do this as well. So, you know, through some of our new energy work, we've started to, as Alex was saying, look beyond some of our traditional oil and gas clients. So we're working with AB InBev, the, the brewing company, you know, helping them decarbonize some of their, their biggest breweries as uh, in the UK as their kind of test market. And for them, it, it's about, you know, how can they be a relevant kind of company going into the, the rest of the this century? And their consumers want a, a product which is ultimately net zero, that has as little environmental impact as possible. So they've, they've got a kind of internal corporately driven, but ultimately it's kind of a shareholder and consumer driven target, which is driving them towards net zero well ahead of any kind of government target. So that you've got a bit of a, a double whammy effect of governments are pushing it because you know, we, we have to and there's recognition it's the right thing to do. But then from a corporate and almost personal level, we're starting to see companies really go ahead of those targets as well. Yeah, that, that push and pull is, is really evident, isn't it, in, in terms of the government can set the the agenda in terms of the aims and they can there's a carrot and stick there some of it is funding grant funding in ways in ways of stimulating the market as well as the stick coming down the line in in terms of carbon taxes or or some kind of level of business penalty in order if you're if you're still polluting or, or or issuing carbon high products where we're seeing almost a fast and that's that's quite slow sometimes that government regulation and it'd be quite complex, although it, it is useful and you need that. But we're seeing a real pull from the consumer-led market in terms of the ESG goals of our of our maybe newer clients. You'd almost call them early adopters or first to market. Yeah. So AB InBev, for instance, if they can sell you a, a, a net zero beer with a probably, a, let's be honest, a green label on it with some windmills and solar panels and fluffy lambs or something, and, and, and they can deliver that in a net zero truck, then, then the investment they're making in terms of that capex and opex to do that is relatively minor compared to you know, shifting a gazillion more bottles of Budweiser for a few cents more per per bottle, and the the sort of the corporate halo and the brand equity they'll get from having a net zero beer or a net zero whiskey or whatever it might be is quite a key driver. If you want to retain relevancy in the market and to you know, try and grab brand share or market share in, in, in with the millennials and, and the, the Europeans particularly who are, are very keen to purchase that that sort of, not virtue signaling, but they, they want to make sure they make the right choices. And sometimes these government grants can be a little bit esoteric and long long burn, whereas buying a, a low carbon food or a low carbon beer or driving a low carbon car it can feel a, quite a quick win actually. I, I think the interesting thing to add on top of that, and then obviously, the kind of energy crisis that we found ourselves in over the last kind of 12 months or so with the war in Ukraine, it, it's added a kind of third driver to this, which is one around energy security. So you know, if, if you need to move away from gas and particularly kind of Russian gas as a kind of primary energy source, actually there are, are things you can do, particularly in producing hydrogen. If you've got some renewables, you can make your own hydrogen and then start to displace particularly natural gas as an energy source. So we're starting to have lots of conversations both with clients who are you know, in countries in Europe, around Europe, where that's their, their kind of primary energy source today. And so they want to, one, give themselves an alternative to that. So if they can generate their own electricity or domestically produce energy in a way that doesn't involve hydrocarbons, that's a big plus. 
And, and with that, obviously, there's a decarbonisation journey that they get to go down uh, at the same time. And then you're looking at you know countries like Germany who are looking to import you know very very large volumes as a result, and that's driving projects, particularly in places like the Middle East. I was in Amman last week for the Green Hydrogen Summit over there. And Amman is looking itself as a, as a potential energy exporter. It's an energy exporter today of, of hydrocarbon molecules, but it sees an opportunity to, to reuse, again, that skill set, capability, some of the infrastructure around the ports uh, and the workforce to start producing green molecules and they produce hydrogen from renewables and then convert it to ammonia and then either ship that to Europe or ship that to Asia where it can be used to, to displace both hydrocarbons and sources of hydrocarbons that are no longer you know, politically acceptable. In, in, in a net zero world, if, you, if you're a, a manufacturer or, or a producer of something and you're using fossil fuels to produce that, you've got two choices and you need to replace that energy input, uh, whether it's a hydrocarbon with a green fuel, ideally probably green molecules from a renewable grid or green electrons. If you can't do either of those and you've got to rely on fossil fuels, maybe you're an energy from waste power plant right so you've, you can't change your feedstock you, you have to you know, burn the waste then you've got to capture the carbon in, in order to avoid the taxes so you've, you know, you've got two choices really is well three i guess you could say you could pay pay the taxes that are coming but that's probably not a great long-term business plan because the taxes are going to inexorably increase as the regulations get tighter you can change your feedstock to green electrons or green molecules or you can capture the carbon and in particular where um, energy from waste plants clients are seeing them as a, a potential source of revenue. So we were speaking to one recently that is burning refuse uh, from Ireland and, and UK and, and uh, elsewhere, and it's burning it for district heating, but it's going to capture the carbon, a fairly small amount, about 200,000 tonnes a year, and it's going to convert that into sustainable aviation fuel. So they'll have, from, from the flue gas that they currently vent to the atmosphere, they'll end up with uh, quite a valuable product. So, so actually, it's, it's good business. Right, that seems to be the case. A lot of it's commercials, and there's, of course, the geopolitical factors like the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, there's consumer habits. Uh, and, of course, there's government-driven regulation. And I, I think one part of that is the international stage. And obviously, we just had COP27 in Egypt this November. And whilst there was some progress there, commentators have expressed some frustration, particularly around commitments to the the phasing down of fossil fuels. Alison, was this a step forward or, or much of the same, do you think? Oh, look, I, I think I share your sentiment that there was some frustration from myself personally and environmental activists and a lot of the countries that were at COP27. I mean, we could probably do a whole podcast on COP27 and what was good and what was bad. But I think what I want to do is just stick to some of the highlights from the COP27 agreements. So, Look, probably the biggest news was that a landmark deal was reached for a loss and damage fund to help vulnerable countries cope with what will be the devastating impacts of global warming. And, you know, this deal was actually one that was decades in the making, but it was only on the COP agenda for the first time this year. So I think this is a plus and something that was achieved. And look, details are still being negotiated for what this fund will look like. And it's certainly going to need some serious cash, especially when one considers that the UN has predicted that adapting to the climate crisis is going to cost developing countries up to 340 billion US dollars by 2030. But all in all, positive that the fund was, was agreed and included. A decision was also made to reaffirm the commitment to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. 
So we're not giving up on that aspirational goal just yet, though some have described it as being on life support. The COP27 agreement also included language on renewable energy for the first time, which is positive, and it reiterated calls to accelerate the phase down of coal power. However, look, there was no decisive move away from fossil fuels, which was disappointing, and you alluded to that, Chris. Countries like India and others had expressly called for this. So that was one of the uh, perhaps the negative things that came away from COP27. Unfortunately, there was also little progress from last year's COP26 meeting in Glasgow around cutting planet heating pollution. So look, all in all, you know, there were some positive aspects, but a few lost opportunities. And we did see some slinging matches between the US and China, the world's two largest emitters which, you know, is really quite unhelpful at such a critical juncture when uh, collaboration is really vital. Thanks, Alison. And of course, COP28, November, December 2023, that, that will be here in the UAE. Coming back to you, what, what is the UAE doing to fight climate change? And, and what goals has it set itself in terms of the energy transition as a whole? Uh, thanks for this question. Look, I'm quite excited about COP being based in the UAE next year because I've been following the sustainability agenda of the UAE for some time now. So look, to give a bit of background on what the UAE, the context here, the UAE obviously reportedly has the world's six largest crude oil reserves and the seventh largest gas reserves. So it's really against this economic context that the UAE is approaching the climate change issue. And of course, the UAE has been diversifying its economy away from oil and gas for some time now, especially in Dubai. So in terms of where the UAE stands on climate change, the UAE is indeed a party to the Kyoto Convention and the Paris Agreement, and His Royal Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, Vice President and Prime Minister of the UAE, has also recently launched a national plan and a roadmap for the next 50 years called We the UAE 2031. Now this places the UAE as a champion of achieving qualitative leaps in climate neutrality. So look, on the ambition front, there's certainly a strong ambition of the UAE towards sustainability. Now, in terms of concrete steps, at the federal level, we do have a raft of environmental legislation. And just earlier this month, the UAE announced the National Building Regulations and Standards, which aim to decarbonise our industry, the construction industry in the country by 5%. So these regulations set sustainability guides for buildings, uh, roads, housing and operation and maintenance. And in terms of other specific targets, the standards aim to reduce the use of materials and natural resources in construction by uh, 15% and reduce energy in buildings and housing by 25%. And just in kind of, you know, other news about the UAE that some listeners might not know, the UAE is the first country in the Middle East to operate zero carbon nuclear power which, along with renewable energy, will provide 14 gigawatts of clean power for the UAE by 2030. And, you know, they have set targets. So the UAE aims to increase the share of clean energy projects to 50% of its overall energy mix by 2050, which is very positive that they've set this target. And the UAE also aims to reach a 25% share of the hydrogen export market, with Japan, South Korea and Germany tipped to be the top destinations. So look, you know, there is a lot going on in the UAE and I'm certainly interested to see what else is unveiled between now and COP28. For sure, all eyes will be on the UAE as the host COP nation. Absolutely. It sounds like the UAE is taking a lot of positive steps towards the energy transition and, and sustainability as a whole. 
also, as we've already heard from John and Alex, corporates are really pushing to update and incorporate new technologies uh, to ensure that they are also part of the change. I think I'd be remiss not to mention that lawyers also have a role in the energy transition, sustainability as a whole. Reed Smith, for example, formally launched its global ESG practice in July with close to 60 lawyers and is contributing pro bono hours to the Chancery Lane project, which aims to put together a net zero toolkit offering climate and net zero line clauses that are ready for use in a range of contracts. Talking about contracts, Alex and John, what are some of the challenges you're faced with when negotiating some of your new energy contracts? Where, where to begin, Chris? Where to begin? So as I think Alex mentioned, so as we're starting to look at this, this market, coming from an oil and gas background, some of the clients are the same. So you've got the, you know, your BPs and these shells who we're used to dealing with and have got a very kind of set way of working. But what we're finding is obviously you've got a bunch of other, and for us, new clients, but guys and girls who've been playing in this space, particularly on the renewable side, so utility companies, but then also you're starting to look at private developers as well. And some of the challenges that we're, we're starting to see you know, from that utilities power generation side, the, the risks and the contract types are quite different in that space to what we're used to seeing in an oil and gas kind of space. And the problem is in, in this kind of new energy world, you've got a bit of a mix you know, in a hydrogen project. Yes, you've got some upstream renewables, some solar and some wind, but then you're producing hydrogen and then you're going through some, you know, quite advanced kind of process chemistry to turn that hydrogen into ammonia, for example. And so that kind of combination of more utility type elements, but then also more kind of petrochemical type elements means you've got quite a mixed set of risks, a mixed set of kind of contractual uh, kind of precedents that you're starting to kind of bring together. And so that, that's been one of the, the challenges that we've been seeing, particularly when we're dealing with you know, clients from that utilities or renewables background, you don't have the understanding of some of the kind of process industry uh, approach to, to managing, exploring some of those contracts and risks. That's been a bit where we've, you know, we're coming from Mars, they're coming from Venus, and we've got to find a way of, um, you know, coexisting on, on Earth together. It's totally solvable. And we certainly, we, we've had some pretty good success over the last 12 months of, you know, helping educate some of the, both the clients, but also some of the advisors around them to, to understand, you know, what it is that we're actually going to be doing. It's more like a refinery nine times out of 10 than it is a power plant. And the fact that a lot of this technology is new, it's being scaled up for the first time. And that itself brings, brings quite a lot of risk. Absolutely. It sounds like interesting times ahead for us lawyers. Perhaps it's a bit too early to discuss disputes, but what sort of disputes do you envisage will arise uh, with some of these new technologies and how do you think they'll be dealt with? So I think some of the, uh, some of the issues we've got is these first of a kind technologies, even uh, certainly even hydrogen or CCOS, it's relatively mature. But when you start to get into the waste of fuels producing sustainable aviation fuel, then these these technologies are, are unproven at commercial scale. Some of them are un, unproven at demo, demo scale even, and we're getting in very early those areas. And, and a lot of these developers, that they're not your IOCs or NOCs, your national oil companies or international oil companies. They, so they don't have a project development background where they, they're used to maturing these projects and, and, and getting it through maybe from equity or from their, from, from their balance sheet. So these are small developers maybe a bit more than two men and the dog in a shed, but it's, you know, they're, they're 20 old people with a really clever idea, probably coming out of a university somewhere, and it's been demonstrated at lab scale, and they want to go out to, to develop that at, at industrial scale and then commercial scale. 
and and they don't have a balance sheet or a project delivery mechanism to do that. So they go out for project funding. The finances are all over this. There's a lot of green money um, sloshing around, just like we discussed our consumer sort of led thing. You've you've got you've got banks and funds set up to invest in green technologies or low carbon technologies, a circular economy technologies, but but they come in with a very low risk appetite and are asking for performance guarantees, process guarantees, full EPC wraps. And the developer clearly can't give them that because the engineering's not been done. The, they've not got a demonst- demonstration. It's not a mature technology or mature industry. And they don't have the balance sheet to give them a, you know, a $300 million process guarantee. So they come to the EPC, such as us, and, and we, we have a good long look at it and sort of suck our fing- fingers a bit and go, well, this has never been done before and this is new kit and you're putting in some weird and wonderful feedstock, waste wood or waste plastic or sewage sludge and you're asking us to take all the risks. So I think there's going to be quite a lot of learning in, in these early days. So dispute-wise, I can see schedule coming in, particularly with Ukraine and the supply chain that's been post-pandemic as well. So we're seeing, I think, schedule LDs could be quite contentious. Uh, depending on mitigating factors and what that looks like, performance guarantees and process guarantees on what the actual output is, because uh, it may not be quite what we think it is. And, and we try and mitigate that technically by doing the early engineering by our teams, and we really get into the, the nuts and bolts of it to make sure it works. But ultimately, you never know until you build it. And then you might get some bizarre feedstock that's not quite to spec or, or is not quite pure enough that produces it. So I think that's going to be quite challenging because the funders will be then looking for, for quite onerous terms and, and there's there's really no incentive at the moment for us to to take those terms on on an immature and unproven technology so that that needs to get fixed if if we're going to get to net zero which is ultimately what these what we're all trying to do here is yes we want to deliver projects and we want to deliver energy but it, we have to do that in a low carbon manner that's that's going to give our children and grandchildren something you know, some, some level of life that's akin to ours and isn't too hot and too wet and, and too dangerous. So you know, how, how do we as an, ind- an industry, as a business, co-develop these projects so that they're successful and provide us a chance to fly to Dubai on you know, circular, low-carbon, zero-carbon fuels, which would be much better than, than, than flying here on, on fossil fuels? Thanks, Alex. Alison, do you have any thoughts as our experienced disputes lawyer? Oh, in terms of what disputes are, are going to uh, happen? Yeah, I do. Look, I think, you know, speaking from a UAE perspective, there's definitely there's definitely some grey areas and ambiguities in some of the sustainability regulations, and this could definitely be a source of disputes on construction projects. We also anticipate some delays on projects associated with an enhanced environmental impact assessment process. So the UAE authorities here are going to need to be very well equipped from a technical and efficiency perspective to ensure that EIA approvals are moved through and don't block progress. And of course, equally, they're going to have to make sure that the stringent sustainability requirements are met. Uh, So it's a balancing act there. So definitely extension of time claims around permits issues is something I think we're going to see more of. And of course, you know, as Alex mentioned with first of kind technologies, Green projects are different to traditional projects and there's a whole new raft of technical terminology, new building methodologies, there's going to be new clauses in contracts and contractors are just going to need to get up to speed with how to operate the contract. 
it's a whole new industry being built here. So staff and labour are going to have to reskill. And some of these projects are going to, you know, involve a scope of work being done by the, you know, for the first time by the people involved. So, you know, it's kind of a dispute waiting to happen as we move into unknown territory. And, you know, for that reason, I agree with Alex that, you know, we're going to see defects claims, we're going to see delay and disruption claims, and they're probably going to be big ones. And I think finally, in terms of the mechanism for dispute resolution, arbitration is going to remain, I think, the you know, preferred dispute resolution forum for construction disputes. But I think that parties should really start considering um, other methods, such as the use of a standing dispute board that we see in the FIDIC contracts. They're not really used much out here in the UAE. And I think I think they should be. Renewables projects, you know, we're going to see issues at the design phase. And I think it's going to be important to nip those disputes in the bud early on in a project. And a fast track dispute board process or an adjudication process, that, that could just be an excellent tool to make sure that, you know, progress isn't hampered and the parties can get on with the job. Thanks, Alison. I think that's a really good point about the use of DABs, particularly in new areas like this. And where issues may arise at various phases of the project. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground here today. It sounds like there are a lot of positive and practical changes happening across the energy sector, although clearly challenges still lie ahead. Thank you so much to Alison, John and Alex for joining me and the insightful discussion we've had here today. As always, please feel free to reach out to Reed Smith should you have any questions. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you'll join us again soon on the Energy Explored podcast. Thank you. Energy Explored is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McCardle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources practice, please email energyexplored at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com. And our social media accounts at LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved. 